Welcome to the APM podcast. APM is the charter body for the project profession. Hi, I'm Mike Hine, online editor for APM's Project Journal, and our topic today is sustainability. As governments worldwide set targets on reaching net zero carbon, project professionals are being tasked with rethinking working practices to cut emissions. Everything from planning to procurement to team structures is being re-evaluated to meet sustainability targets. But it's worth remembering that sustainability encompasses more than climate change. It means balancing the environmental, social, economic and administrative aspects of projects to meet current stakeholder needs without compromising the needs of future generations. We all have a moral and ethical responsibility to think about these wider issues, how to live, grow and thrive within our environment with the future health of the planet in mind. But far from being an additional burden on project professionals, sustainability presents an opportunity for them to demonstrate their value in aligning with corporate strategic objectives around net zero. By embedding sustainability within every aspect of their projects, project professionals can make a big difference and boost their visibility to the organization's leadership. In this episode, we speak to three experts working in the field of sustainability to find out more. We explore how sustainability can be embedded in projects at a practical level, getting beyond the jargon to consider how project professionals can make a measurable difference today, while accepting that no one has all the answers. First up, I spoke with Paul Mansell. Paul's career started in the Marine Commandos and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and he later moved into management consultancy with Deloitte. After four years, he left to co-found Morehouse Consulting, which was later sold to BT. For the last 10 years, he's been independent. A third of his time is given to pro bono work, and the remainder is spent working for the Cabinet Office and the Treasury to review and be the lead advisor on mega projects such as HS2. In addition, Paul recently achieved his doctorate, which is in evaluation of climate change and the sustainable development goals, and the interface with investment decisions, particularly around infrastructure projects. Thanks for joining us, Paul. To start with, can you give us a bit of background on when sustainability became a major focus for you? To be honest, uh, I was way behind the curve for much of my time. I didn't really understand sustainability. I realized that there were issues that were evolving, but it wasn't a high priority when big investment decisions were made. And indeed, when I would go in to review a mega program or or advise on them, uh, sustainability was a word that was rarely used. And certainly there was little common understanding. So there's actually a key day for me when I learnt about climate change and drove my current focus. And that was on the 10th of April, 2017. I'm a part-time uh, adventurer explorer and I'd been invited as a deputy expedition leader to the North Pole, making an Amazon film. And having completed that ski trek to the North Pole, we were extracted via a Russian ice station. And it's there that I learnt that in April, 2017, there was a million square kilometers less ice than the year before at the same time. And they then explained what the impact of that was on weather patterns. Essentially, less ice meant that the sea absorbed more heat. It lost its sort of magnet effect on the weather patterns in around the north polar regions. That affected both sea, land, both across and within ecosystems. And I came back to UK. APM had just commissioned Professor Peter Morris to do a study and a paper into what the project management community should do around climate change. And I'd been working at UCL for a number of years by that stage. And it was a natural progression for me to say, I need to better understand this area and see what I can put back. And through Professor Peter Morris, I started my PhD in 2018. And through that research, what did you find out about sustainability in a project context specifically? 
That's a great question because that's exactly where I started my PhD. What is sustainability? What does it mean in a project environment? Where is good practice? And what can we do better in the future? The first thing I found out was that there's no common understanding. It was a lexicon mired in confusion. Part of the confusion starts from the fact that are we talking about actually delivering a project? In other words, sustainably delivering it with the right processes in place during that implementation phase? Or are we talking about the system of systems, the outcome impacts of what you have produced from that project? I use a very simple example of a bridge. You know, are we looking at the sustainability of the project management of delivering that bridge? You know, use of concrete, steel, trying to help people get to work effectively, trying to get the raw materials to that project in an efficient way that reduces fumes and traffic and all those sides. Or are we actually talking about the outcomes, which is the bridge leads to urban regeneration that provides new schools, new hospitals. It allows people to travel quicker to get from A to B, uh, reducing use of cars and therefore air quality improves. And that is the thing that I found about sustainability and the definition of it is that people were very confused about which elements they were looking at during or post. And that starts to be answered by looking, instead of at sustainability, look at the definition of sustainable development. I think it's worth just quoting what really is, is the defining definition of sustainable development. And the best one we have today, which is from the Brundtland Commission back in, I think it was 1987, he said something along the lines that we want development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And that is so relevant for every project and program I've ever been involved with. So in summary, to answer your question, yes, it's mired in controversy and misunderstandings and getting a common lexicon has got to be one of our starting points. Can you give us some examples of sustainable project management in practice? This became one of the most enjoyable parts of my doctorate research. I developed a model pretty early on based on uh, some research. I included a survey of 325 engineers and project managers and 40 senior execs. Um, and I was presenting that research and a number of key partners stepped forward to say, look, we'd like to be involved in, in your, uh, your case studies and, and testing this in, in real life. And you know, amongst them were the Cabinet Office, the IPA, the UN Global Compact, uh, the Institution of Civil Engineers, and Building Research Establishment, uh, amongst others. But there were three particular projects and organizations that stood up that said, look, we fully embrace what you're trying to do, Paul. The first one is the Environment Agency. The second one is Anglian Water. And the third one is Thames Tideway. And they were brilliant because they fully leveraged the opportunity to take this research from theoretical into the practical. And this is where your listeners might, might actually find some interesting uh, lines for them to develop in their own projects. So the first one is the Environment Agency, with huge backing from their board and, and their chair particularly. They've aligned every investment decision across their flood portfolio, which I think is about 5.2 billion today. From the 1st of April this year, every investment decision is aligned to the sustainable development goals. And what they found when, when we did this case study 
um, a, a year ago, it completed after four months' work with them. They took it down to the project level, such as Boston Project, a big flood barrier they, they were putting uh, together in Cambridgeshire, and across some smaller and larger projects. And what they found is, is that sustainable development at the start of a project, using that language, enable them to be able to communicate much more effectively with the stakeholders of that project, such as health, such as the benefits around education, gender equality, climate change issues. And they definitely learned that they would have found it helpful to use sustainability and sustainable development early on in, in their projects. So they're now adopting that. In terms of Anglian Water, well, they were sustainability business of the year. I think it was 2016. It may have been 2017. And, and they did some amazing work. And, and I worked closely with them to better understand what was happening well around sustainability and, and sustainable development on their projects. And if I pick one example, the At One organization they set up was to align their supply chain and what they did was they achieved a common view of what success looked like as a group. This ensured that they built sustainability and sustainable development into their project thinking from the very start. So they were all aligned to some very tough carbon objectives, uh, as an example. And they set really bold targets that in some cases, many said will never be achieved. And their view was that unless you think very boldly, you're never going to get there. And with the climate change issues that we're faced, then that's absolutely imperative that that happens. And the last one is Thames Tideway in London, the super sewer, as it's sometimes called. They had 54 legacy commitments that they aligned to sustainability goals from the start and very, very full set of criteria to measure that. And they aligned those to the sustainable development goals so that they could be able to report both on, and here are two key words for project managers, attribution and contribution. You see, contribution is quite a loose word. I contribute, but how do you contribute? If it's attributed, you're saying exactly what you're putting back into the local economy or how you're reducing fumes in the airs and, and you measure it. And that measurement is a key part. You mentioned the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I think it'd be worth spelling out for listeners what those are and how they might be helpful to project professionals. The SDGs, commonly known as the Global Goals, were adopted by 193 nations at the UN in 2015. So it's really a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy sort of peace and prosperity. And they've set targets and indicators out to 2030. So there's 17 of these global goals and at an icon level, so they've each got their own icons, they're very, very powerful. And to really get this proper measurement, they've developed this measurement framework, which needs to be thorough, but is just too much for project managers to take themselves because there's 169 targets underneath the 17 goals and 232 indicators, actually there are 244, but few of them are repeats. So you can see there's one big challenge there. Those are what the SDGs are. One example, SDG 13 is climate change. So you can see, you know, just one issue like climate change, there's some very big ones there as well, health, education, economic prosperity, and they are effectively a one-stop shop of the key things that matter to us as an 
earth or global community. And that's why they're so important to the listeners. Do concerns around sustainability mean we need to reevaluate the criteria that define project success? So there's a yes and no. So the yes part is you are 100% right. In the past, if we go way back to someone called Peter Drucker, who's one of the early management gurus, he sort of had a very financially focused way of assessing businesses, health, and also around making project investments. And indeed, our own cabinet office, the green book that the cabinet office treasury have developed is very economically focused. The return on investment is financially driven. And therefore, to date, we have not had a balance across what is often referred as the triple bottom line, Elkington's triple bottom line of economic, environmental and social. And, and those have to be balanced to be able to think longer term about protecting our planet. And they are so relevant at project level. So that's the definite yes, we need to look at it much broader. But the no part of it is that we've actually been doing some great work across our community and, uh, and sectors, various sectors, in developing, especially in the last few years. One example would be looking at uh, the social value. It's now law in UK that social value has to be considered. Also around the environmental impact. So net zero target is now crystallized in law and therefore it's being forced down the supply chain. So th there's, there's a lot of good work that's out there. And if we build on things like our approach to benefits management and many of the investment decision frameworks that we've already got, I'm optimistic for the future. What can project professionals do to move sustainability up the strategic agenda within their organisation? The one key area is be a voice that is heard and, and take talking into action because the, the great threat we face is what I call greenwash, where there's some great brochures out there using sustainable development, sustainability and SDGs, but what is the data and proof behind it that they're achieving those targets? And I think that individuals within a project at whatever level can be the champions. I have learned much more over the past three years from millennials than I've ever learned from the most experienced senior leaders. Um, and, and that is because they speak with a passion. It's, it's the Greta effect and it's inspiring and energizing and it's creating an impact on people of my generation who are also seeing that we need to do something differently in a very short time frame. We have 10 years, less than 10 years, to react to the 2030 targets. And what everyone is recognizing is that if we don't make big changes now, individually, on a project and organizationally, we are going to do irreparable damage to this amazing world that we live on. Finally, do you have any advice for project professionals in overcoming resistance on this topic, whether from organisational leaders, clients or individual team members? I think there's an appeal to people's humanity and to their, their sense of priorities. In other words, it's not just a job. Project management is a profession and as we have developed our understanding of the charterships and everything that that involves with it, we realize there are some core values and moral importance to the way that we go about doing our day-to-day our -day job. And therefore, I, I would say that project community can leverage everything that's happening in the wider world. And I think COP26 
um, which is happening in Glasgow, UK is leading this global climate change event, is a fabulous uh, location to go to. Go to their website, look at all the things that are happening, that UK is at the forefront of driving, and share that with your community on your projects and your organization, because that in itself will help drive the agenda, because it's sort of get with it or move aside is, is the simple message. Next, I spoke with Julia Jones. Julia works within the responsible business team as a sustainability manager at global consultancy and construction firm MACE. Her academic background is in civil and environmental engineering, and she later joined MACE on the graduate scheme as a project manager. After a couple of years working in the project management team, she found an opportunity in the responsible business team, which is when the focus of her work shifted to sustainability. Thanks for joining us, Julia. To begin with, I'd like to ask you to explain what your role as sustainability manager involves. Absolutely. So I work with clients in the private and public sector across a range of developments. So from commercial offices to retail and residential developments. And basically what I do is I help them deliver their sustainability ambitions in their real estate. So that could be uh, the construction of a new project, a refurbishment or in the operation of their existing assets. And it really depends on what the client wants and needs and where they are on their sustainability journey. So for some of them, we might be actually helping them develop their strategy, identify what it should be, what their roadmap looks like. And then for others, it's really about delivering either on a net zero carbon strategy. That's been really a real big focus over the last 12 months to other things like green building certification that some may have heard of, such as LEED and BREAM. And another real focus area is also um, healthy buildings. So we look at that via things like the WELL standard. What does sustainability mean to you in a project context? It's a good question. Again, it, it really depends on the project. But for me, ultimately, it's about moving away from the, a project that is looking solely on a kind of financial return or on your, I guess, more more common project targets where you're looking at your budget and your program and quality, but um, actually including people in the environment in, in that as well. So it's not about ignoring money or the finance aspect of it but it's about putting the impact on people and on the planet on the same level um, as profit. What aspects of the sustainability challenge are clients primarily looking for advice on? It's been a really interesting kind of 18 months, I would say, because Mace actually, as a business, launched its net zero carbon strategy in January of 2020 before the pandemic. And there was so much excitement around it, so much engagement. You know, it, it really seemed to be what clients wanted to hear about. So carbon and, and how to drastically reduce emissions. So not just kind of small reductions, which is maybe what we were used to, but actually, you know, a roadmap to zero. And we weren't sure how it was going to pan out um, and, and what the impact of the pandemic would be. But um, actually, we have found that if anything, it, it's just grown. So I would say at the moment, yeah, the engagement is it's all about carbon and road to net zero carbon. But then the the second one I would say, which I've sort of mentioned, is healthy buildings and well-being. So everyone has obviously been impacted by the pandemic. And if anything, it's really focused our minds on how much our indoor environment can be um, detrimental um, to our health if it's a, not a good environment or how much it can actually support our well-being. 
and productivity. So a lot of companies have become really interested in looking at their offices and, and looking at how they can make them spaces that people want to return to and spaces where, you know, they can get their most out of their people and their people enjoy being. How would you assess clients' overall awareness of sustainability as an issue? In September of 2020, we ran a survey where we sent out a questionnaire to over 600 client uh, representatives. I think about 96% of them identified sustainability carbon as a key priority for their business. So clients now get it. And the question isn't so much, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to care about sustainability? But more on what is it that we need to do? So it's much more now about the what and the how rather than the why, if that makes sense. You've alluded to this already, but tell us a bit more about Mace's commitment to achieving net zero. We made the statement that we wanted to be net zero by the end of 2020. And we made that commitment pre-COVID, which, you know, as a team, we, we weren't sure initially what the impact would be. Thankfully, um, as I've said, if anything, it, it reaffirmed our own board members, but actually really the whole company's commitment to it. And as of Q1 of this year, we are officially a net zero carbon business. So what has happened over the course of 2020 is that we implemented uh, a load of activities to try to reduce our own corporate carbon footprint. And then we measured our kind of remaining carbon. So the carbon that we were unable to avoid emitting at this time. And then we've invested in a series of offsetting projects. Offsetting can still be quite a controversial topic. And in the past, it was seen quite negatively by certain parties within the world of sustainability. Our view is that we do say we're in a climate emergency. In fact, our new business purpose states one of its strategic priorities as accelerating the built environment's response to the climate emergency. So the idea is if you're in an emergency, you can't just sort of sit around and wait for the perfect solution, you've got to take whatever action you can take right now. And actually investing in some really fantastic and robust verified offsets can be a great way of doing what you can right now to get to net zero. But of course, we have to keep working to reduce our net emissions. And that's why we've got a really clear plan in place over the next five years um, to reduce not just our corporate carbon footprint, but our clients as well. So we've set a target to um, reduce 1 million tonnes of clients' carbon. And to put that into context, our business footprint in 2020 was about 13,000 tonnes. So what we, we recognise actually that whilst corporately it was very important that we practice what we preach, actually our sphere of influence once we look at our clients through our project management colleagues, our construction colleagues, was going to be far greater. So it really is all hands on deck on the business and it's not something that just my team as a sustainability team is being tasked to look at. It's absolutely everyone across the business. That's quite an exciting space to be. What kind of activities fall under the header of offsetting? So there's kind of two main types of offsetting, if you like. So the first type will be carbon absorption projects. So that will be, I think, maybe the thing that most people think of your tree planting. So it could be it could be tree planting, it could be reforestation or investing in protecting of piece of land. So, for example, peatlands in the UK are actually great carbon sinks, uh, even better than than a lot of just trees, because really where the carbon absorption happens is in the soil. So one side of it is kind of looking at projects where either you're increasing the number of trees, you're protecting parts of the Amazon, or as I said, protecting kind of peatlands, wetlands, that sort of thing. The other side are 
carbon avoidance projects. So that is where you invest in a project, which essentially the idea is you are preventing a certain amount of carbon from entering the atmosphere. So those will be things like renewable energy projects. So investing in a solar or wind farm, perhaps in a developing economy where if it didn't have that investment from the offsetting company, it's likely that that energy would have needed to be procured via fossil fuels of some kind. And there's also really like decentralized and kind of off-grid investment. So it could be small scale solar and wind power for rural communities, but it's also things like better cooking stoves for villages where otherwise they might be chopping down forests, chopping down timber to, to burn for their cooking. So again, you're preventing that carbon from being emitted in, in the atmosphere in the first place. What do you think makes a project successful in sustainability terms? I think for me, it would be about, I mean, you always have to make compromises on projects, but it, it'd be about not having sacrificed your your original objectives and goals because of program or, or cost constraints or, or something like that. So it's about delivering on what you set out to do. If you were looking in carbon terms, you know, have you saved carbon compared to what you, you might have done if you were a typical project that wasn't looking at sustainability? And, and then in terms of, I guess, more general is, you know, have you delivered something that benefits society and isn't harmful to the environment? So at MACE, we, we use a term called social value. So it's a metric that we we can actually measure and, and set targets against. And a lot of the times when it comes to environmental things, it's more about, you know, avoiding harm. So not using diesel and therefore not emitting carbon, not having obviously like a, a spill or cutting down a tree that you're not supposed to, anything like that. So it's, it's kind of environmentally, it's often about avoiding harm. But then in terms of people, it's in construction, have you liaised with the community? You know, have you created a project which has been embraced by the local community? You know, what outreach has been done? Have you helped with creating new jobs or resources in some way for that space, for that area? I think that's really important because, you know, you can deliver a beautiful building that's absolutely perfect. You know, it delivers on the architect's design to a T and it's interesting engineering. But if it isn't welcomed by the people of, in that area, by the community as a whole, you know, I, I guess I'd argue that's not been successful in terms of sustainability, because it does need to be about the people and the legacy of the project as well as it can't just be about counting carbon and reducing carbon. Do you think there's a risk that the terminology around sustainability could be unclear or confusing? I, I hope that it's not. Um, I think that, you know, a risk is is always there. And when you start getting caught up in definitions, whether it's what net zero carbon means, because it can mean different things to different people. It could be, but what I hope as responsible business and sustainability professionals we've learned is that, you know, we need to be more inclusive in our language and in our communication, because actually it's not that complicated. And I think there's so much good work that can be done by project managers in their role that it doesn't need you to be a technical expert. I, I mean, for me, when I'm I'm writing a report or I'm communicating with a client, the simplest way I found to do it is to say, okay, when I use this term, this is what I mean. So I will almost have like a definitions page or a glossary in my, whether it's a presentation or report. I mean, I'd say if, if you're a project manager looking into it and you're not sure about something, of course, ask or, or do your research, but actually don't be afraid to get it wrong. You know, chances are you'll know more than the people you're talking to if you've done your research. And if you get it slightly wrong, you can always go back to people to clarify. 
I think the biggest learning from from our industry over the last few years has been that we need to be inclusive and we need everybody to get involved. You know, it really needs everyone to be working towards this. So I would really hope that that means people do feel empowered to get stuck in, to try to help on their projects, regardless of their role or of the, you know, the project specific requirements, because because it, it shouldn't be complicated. It shouldn't be too difficult. What can project professionals do to move sustainability up the agenda within their organisation? I think, again, it, it will really depend on their role and, and what the challenges are. You know, why do they feel it's not at the top of the agenda? As I've said, I, I do feel most of our clients it is, if not at the very top, it must be in the top three of, of all CEOs' priorities. But maybe at the more, I, I want to say, kind of local level. I don't think it's it's that it's not on the agenda. It's just that like everything else, there's always lots of competing priorities, right? So I think it's getting comfortable with talking about it. I understand that, you know, this is what I talk about every day. So of course, it's going to be easier for me, but there is so much out there in terms of like free resources and, and, you know, case studies, whether it's books or webinars, just, just loads of free content out there. So I think it's really about getting comfortable talking about it. And, and realizing that actually, even if it, you don't need to be a sustainability manager to talk about sustainability with people and to raise it with your stakeholders, whether they're internal or external, to raise it, you know, as a talking point or have it on your agenda. You know, I think all project managers, you set up a meeting, you you create an agenda for that meeting. Make sure sustainability or responsible business, however you want to call it, is one of those items. And I'd suggest don't put it at the bottom. <laughs> I often find it's at the bottom of the agenda. You know, if you don't want it to be an afterthought, then it can't be an afterthought in how we manage our conversations as well. And don't be afraid to get it wrong. If you if you start slightly, you know, fluff a definition or you get something slightly wrong, you know, it's completely fine to then go back to someone and, and say, oh, I just wanted to clarify this point. One of the things we've been doing in our team, which is a really tough exercise, but I found has been really good is we've actually started testing each other, doing kind of elevator pitches. And so it literally is, you know, one to two minutes. You don't need to be an expert, but actually by taking the time to do a little bit of research and write something down that's polished and that we've practiced, we've found we're all getting much better and more effective at doing that. And any project manager could could have a list of these kind of sustainability elevator pitches. And then they can always say, you know, happy to to link you up with an expert if you are interested, you know, if they if the client wants to go a little bit deeper. Procurement seems to me like an area where some of the good intentions on sustainability could potentially fall down. Do you have any thoughts on how to do sustainable procurement? Yeah, I, I think that's spot on, actually, because you can have all the good intentions in the world. But if your procurement process, your whether it's a pre-qualification questionnaire or tender in- interviews, don't have anything about the sustainability requirements in there, or they have them, but they're not weighted appropriately, you're not going to appoint a team that is going to is going to be able to deliver on on your requirements, I think. So and, and this is equally i think important whether it's i mean in construction whether it's your project team like your client team your designers your engineers as much as you know your main contractor and other consultants so i think for me it's it's yeah it's making sure it's part of a thread all the way through so you need to have the right questions in the pqqs have you know relevant 
tender interviews. If you have a sustainability consultant on board, get them to contribute to the interviews, you know, to be there. Because I think, again, it, it sends a really strong message if you have someone whose role is looking after project sustainability in an interview. And then the waiting, the waiting is important. So obviously procurement processes can vary, but again, you can have some really fantastic um, sustainability questions, but if they then don't make a difference to the overall score, you could get someone who, because maybe they've scored really well from a commercial perspective, but not so well on sustainability, they could still get through or be, you know, be appointed. So yeah, so again, not have them be a token, but actually be um, considered as important as the other elements. And then I think it's really about working with the supply chain. So I think we as may definitely recognize that it is a, still very much a, a, a learning curve, particularly when it comes to net zero carbon, for example, but also with the work I do on healthy buildings. And not everyone is going to have all the answers ready. So what we've actually done is we've set kind of some training up with them and a time frame where we're saying, look, we want you to have a net zero carbon strategy. You don't need to be net zero carbon, but we want you to start mapping this out and have something ready over the next year. So, it, yeah, I think really working with people. And then my last point was lean on your design teams. I guess this is a little bit construction specific, but if there are you know key project sustainability KPIs, it's not enough to just pass it on to the main contractor. Have they been really specific in their material selection? or whatever it might be in their specification documents to say all the timber needs to be FSC certified, which is a responsible sourcing certificate, you know, that kind of thing. Sometimes we do fall into the trap of passing it on to the, the contractor. So the responsibility needs to sit with everyone across the project. Finally, are there any resources out there that you would recommend to project professionals? So first point of call for built environment professionals is look at the World Green Building Council. Uh, and there's also the UK Green Building Council. They have some really great studies and reports on on different elements of sustainability, kind of with research and with testimonials, because I think case studies are a really powerful way to engage people. So that's kind of if you're looking for, I guess, ammunition, but I say this in a, in a really positive way for your projects. Um, and then I think for everyone else, I know for me, climate emergency and sustainability, it can be quite serious and it at times can be a little bit overwhelming of trying to think, you know, well, I don't really work with clients that can do this or trying to see what you can do in your own life. So I found the book, which is called The Future We Choose, is a really great way to look at the climate emergency. It gives you like a really kind of positive spin on saying, actually, if we all work together, this is something we can do. Um, and it, it coined the phrase stubborn optimist, um, which is kind of the <laughs> my philosophy that I tried to follow. So um, Future We Choose, it's, it's a short book. I think it's really great. And it was written by, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, unfortunately, but um, Christina Figueres. So she spearheaded the Paris 2015 climate agreement and her and her colleague wrote the book. And and then the last one really was if, if you are into your science and your research and want something that's very factual, the UN IPCC reports, they outline everything there. So if you really want kind of a primary source for facts and figures on the climate emergency and, and why we need to act, um, they, yeah, they've published reports almost every year. Finally, I spoke with Stuart Johnson, a chartered surveyor and project manager with his own firm. In the past, Stuart worked for general practice surveying firms where he used to do technical due diligence, which then evolved into development monitoring for advanced investors and then more exclusively project management. 
He was an equity partner at one firm and a director at another. And then around 15 years ago, he decided he wanted to work differently, bringing his experience to bear in working with interesting clients. So he set up Stuart Johnson Consulting. Hi, Stuart. Can you give us a bit of background on when sustainability became a focus within your professional life? Kind of always has been, as um, even in my 20s, I started thinking about renewables and green issues, as they were called then, started researching it, did a bit of speaking, and Macmillan, the publisher, approached me and asked me to write a book, which was published and reprinted, called Greener Buildings. And I was part of the first 12-month review of BRIAM, uh, the environmental assessment method when it first came out. So I kind of sensed it was it was interesting to me, but it was it was worth making that investment in my time because I knew it was here to stay and it's just a mainstream part of my work now. You've recently been involved in the Lambeth Palace Library project on London's South Bank, which was profiled in the spring edition of APM's project journal. Tell us a bit about that project and how you came to be involved. Well, the project was driven by the church commissioner, who are the commissioners who are the client, and they realised that they needed to safeguard their collection of manuscripts. It's apart from the Vatican, it's the most important archive of its type in the world. I'd been working on a hotel redevelopment in Cambridge for another client who happened to be a church commissioner and he asked me to throw my hat in the ring I was interviewed and I was I was really busy at the time and I wasn't sure that it, I was the right fit for them or that my workload really allowed me to do this project but I knew it was an important scheme and I, I put some work into a few pointers about how they might go about things what the risks might be and that seemed to go down very well and um, they invited me to be their project manager. How did you embed sustainability principles within the Lambeth Palace Library project? I always invest a bit of time with clients right at the outset in the first of the RIBA stages, which is actually establishing the brief. It's often a stage that's skipped over. And we made sure that low carbon, biodiversity, proper environmental considerations were taken into account in the brief. That was then used as the basis to appoint the designers and the rest of the team. And one of the first things we did is we did some case study visits and they were really interesting to tell us what we didn't want as well as what we did want. I have this clear memory of going to a new archive down on the South Coast and it was very impressive, but the conservators were complaining about the really fierce air conditioning to maintain archival standards um, for 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 their documents down there. And it it had turned out to be so cumbersome, so expensive, that there was just no money for anything else. So the rest of the scheme was value engineered to excess. Everything was cost cut. And the air conditioning scheme didn't even provide the reliable conditions that the archives needed. So I just wanted to go about it differently. And we started at the outset to say, well, how can we make this archive for for the Church of England as passive as possible while still meeting the British standard, PD 5454? Uh, you can't have an entirely passive archive because you don't meet the the um, British standards if you do that. But we decided to have a really massive construction that would be excellent for fire protection, but also would moderate or mitigate the uh, effect of the weather outside and also keep the conditions inside stable. And we've ended up with a situation that has very, very modest inputs. Really, it's just once a day for an hour, just some trickle air affecting the temperature and the humidity. So it's a bit like a a super tanker, really, just 
set it on its course and just tweak it every now and then to keep it going. We've got, even though it's a central London site, as you mentioned, we managed to get half of the building's energy actually from on-site renewables, which was which was not easy, but we were glad we did it. And then it comes down to really simple, durable, high-quality materials like the brickwork, which will last for a very long time. And keeping that palette of materials really simple... And then part of the original team assembly included Dan Pearson, who's a very well-known landscape architect. And it's a very beautiful garden at the back of the archive building, the library building. But it's got really good sustainability credentials. It's got really good biodiversity. So there's a a pond. But we even set up a temporary pond during construction so that um, the pond life could migrate from the building site through to this temporary pond and then migrate naturally in the right season back to the garden. Did working on such a historic site raise any unique considerations to do with sustainability? Well, absolutely. I mean, Lambeth Palace, and this building is is at the end of the garden of Lambeth Palace, is a grade one listed building. And I think it, it kind of comes naturally to me. As a kid, I was always fascinated with buildings. I am a building surveyor, a chartered building surveyor. So actually being respectful and appreciative of the built environment, existing buildings, seeing how they can be preserved and useful in the 21st century is kind of just comes naturally to me, really. Tell us a bit more about the BRIAM standards and how they're applied. Yeah, so the Building Research Establishment, uh, which used to be a a kind of quasi-government body and is now uh, a separate company, set up a long time ago the Building Research Establishment Environmental Assessment Method, which was an attempt and has has been successful in my view of setting a consistent level of standards for buildings to achieve lower environmental impacts. And there are different BRIAM standards for different types of buildings and for refurbishments and fit-outs. And they um, deal with everything from biodiversity through to water use, through to carbon. And there are different criteria, both for the design stage and for the construction stage for those. And you you get a a rating at the end, uh, which is done and verified independently from outstanding um, and then sliding down the scale. But it's great for market transparency, because if an investor or an occupier is looking for, say, an office unit, one of the questions that they can ask is, you know, is there a BRIAM certificate for this building or these two or three buildings we're looking at? And if one of them is excellent and a couple of the others are kind of good or unassessed, then it's a very simple way of beginning that consideration of which building to take. How do sustainability criteria alter the way we think about success in a project context? I think that's a really important point, And I think we have to think more widely One of the issues that was a bugbear for me, particularly when I was working for the general practice firms earlier in my career, is this separation between investment ownership of investment-grade properties and occupation. And for decades, for, for hundreds of years, I'm sure, that meant that the owners of the buildings, the investors, had very little interest in how long the buildings lasted how what their running costs were, how much energy they used. That isn't the case anymore, but it's been a long time coming. So I think we just need to get into this new way of looking at things as what is the carbon that's used in the building throughout its life? So not just in construction, but in its occupation and its maintenance and reuse. And whenever I set up a team, 
I also, at each RIBA stage, I make sure that the cost managers and the rest of the team collaborate, not only to give a cost, a, a, a capital cost for that stage, but also the operating cost. So they're always thinking about the life cycle of the building rather than it just being, let's get to practical completion and walk away. How can projects build sustainability in from the start rather than trying to bolt it on at a later date? This is something I'm, I'm really passionate about. It kind of goes to the heart of the, the whole issue, really. And, and I don't think you can any more bolt sustainability onto a project than you can bolt meeting a budget. You have to actually just do it as part and parcel of everything that you do all the way through your work. When I first started thinking and talking about sustainability, I saw an article in Building Magazine and, and one of the quantity surveying firms had said, oh, you know, if you meet Briam, this was in the very early days, it's going to increase build costs by 20% and more. Uh, and I rebutted that. I actually wrote in and they published my letter to say that that misunderstands the whole approach. You don't bolt on energy efficiency measures, low carbon measures to an inefficient building. You actually just do it, do less, better. You just go about it in a different way. Do you find there's a need to educate clients on sustainability? And if so, how do you approach that conversation? With most clients, and certainly the kind of clients I'm lucky enough to work for, it's a journey we take together. So I find quite a good starting point is to talk about, as well as their requirements for, for now, for this project, about the importance of low running costs, ease of maintenance, cost of maintenance, the durability, the life expectancy of the building and its components. And that then automatically leads into a discussion about sustainability. So I don't find it a tricky conversation or something that I find I'm pushing against an open door. When deciding whether to work with a new client, how big a factor is sustainability in that decision? It is an important point and my work is repeat business and recommendations. So I suppose there's a certain self-selection. There's a, a, I tend to gravitate towards more interesting clients, more interested clients. And, and I'm very fortunate and grateful for that. But occasionally you get an opportunity and it's clear that um, sustainability is simply not an issue for them. They just want the best return, the cheapest capital expenditure. And that isn't my way of working. But I also find that that kind of very restricted way of looking at things from a client can lead to problems in the teams that they select, the, the fees they want to pay to that team, and the kind of extent of the work that's done. Um, so I am really quite selective about who, I, who I'd work for, and I would shy away from that kind of work. Do you think the terminology in this area is ill-defined or potentially confusing to project professionals? It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because the terminology has changed over time. I mean, when I started out on this, it was all about green. And that term has become so debased. I even talk about people using or applying greenwash, like whitewash, because, you know, people use a, a few bits of jargon and actually just carry on with their bad old ways. I like sustainability because actually it takes into account the organisation's day-to-day -day activities and objectives as well. So to be sustainable, the building has to uh, facilitate that organisation's activities as well. And there's no shame in that. You know, businesses should make money. Um, public sector organisations should provide services and be efficient about it. And I quite like some of these looser interpretations um, because they allow our understanding to evolve over time. 
and they can be applied to all different aspects, all different facets of what we do. And I think that's how it should be. How can project professionals develop a long-term plan for sustainability that builds up over time, rather than feeling like this is something that they have to solve overnight? I think it's about building an understanding of the wider issues of sustainability and applying them as much as is appropriate for each job at that moment in time. So, you know, I think that different clients will have different requirements, different expectations, different markets will have different expectations. But I think it all comes down from an understanding of some of the key principles about, you know, reducing the use of carbon, extending the life of the buildings. And I think if you start from that kind of understanding, it's much more organic, it's much easier to apply them to individual projects. It feels as though mindset is really important here, seeing sustainability not as a burden or another tick box exercise, but as an opportunity to not only deliver great projects, but help leave a positive legacy too. Would you agree? Absolutely. I, I really do feel that. And I feel that I'm very proud of the work that I've done. And I think we should seize the opportunities to do good work that we can be proud of. So I think it's a sort of a a, a carrot rather than a stick. Um, I mean, I don't think that considering sustainability is any more burdensome than considering how to assemble an appropriate team or how to get this a particular project in on budget or on time. I think it's just part and parcel. They're just different facets of, of the same thing. What are some of the common pitfalls or errors that could lead to missed sustainability targets? I think the devil's in the detail. I think you absolutely have to follow through on everything. So you have to have this big picture. What is it you're trying to achieve? What what standards are you meeting? What are you trying to minimise the use of? But then just set those standards, check and double check that they're being met. I remember one project which uh, actually won the Sterling Prize and it got a lot of positive press. But actually, one of the journalists decided that they would it would be a, a interesting to find a sort of negative aspect to it, and absolutely drilled into the um, individual certificates for each piece of timber that we used. And we had those. But actually, it would be very easy through the supply chain, through the life of a building, just to let one of those slip, and then we would have failed, and the there would have been the bad publicity. And just finally, is there a library of standards or resources where project professionals can go to find out more? It's a really tricky question, this one, because I I don't think that there is one single source. I think it's about building our education as time goes. All of us, it's a continuing process. CPD is is good for that. I think that um, just picking up one of the BRIAM standards and looking through the different credits and building an understanding of what those are and how they can be achieved is is one way of going about it. The other thing is just through our day-to-day work. I've been fortunate enough to work with some really enlightened team members. Some of the engineers at um, Max Fordham and Arup and Atelier 10 are really at the cutting edge internationally of different aspects of different different types of sustainability, different aspects of sustainability. And going to and sitting in on design team meetings and project meetings with them is an education in itself. So I think it's an accumulative thing uh, for me, and that's the way that I'd, I'd put it for others. Thanks to Paul, Julia and Stuart for giving us their time and to you for listening to this episode. For further reading, head to the APM website where you can download papers including Climate Change and What the Project Profession Should Be Doing About It by Professor Peter Morris and the second challenge paper in the Projecting the Future series focused on climate change, clean growth and sustainability. See the episode description for links. 
get in touch with your feedback and suggestions, please email us at apmpodcast at thinkpublishing.co.uk. This podcast has been brought to you by APM, the chartered body for the project profession. Find out more at apm.org.uk.